So the Gospel of Luke. It's uh, interesting to just change out of 1 Peter, but we will come back. We'll come back in Fe- uh, uh, yeah, February. We'll do Luke uh, 1 to 2, uh, up, up to about partway through. Oh, it's just one. One's just a... No, one and a bit of two. It's just one's a massive chapter. You can see I'm well prepared for this, uh, this Christmas series. But uh, uh, I assure you I've spent time in Luke uh, and I've, I've found it quite encouraging. It's, it, thought, it is thought-provoking. So let's read. We're reading 25 verses, which is sort of bringing back Genesis days rather than our 1 Peter uh, time. And uh, it's, it's mostly narrative, so it's um, pretty easy to follow along. Luke 1, 1 to 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent theologians that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they, both, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the law. Lord, but they had no ch- child, because Elizabeth was barren, and, bore, and, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he, will, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit, and the power of Elijah shall turn the hearts in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his, at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them 
and remained mute. And when his, his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the, day, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for guidance as we discuss it. Holy Father, we thank you so much for your everlasting word. We thank you that through the Holy Spirit you inspired men like Luke who wrote an orderly, uh, intellectual, historical account so that we may be certain of the truth of our faith. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for this gospel that is before us and this account that goes not just to the beginning of Christ but to the uh, pre uh, the advancer of Christ, John the Baptist. We thank you so much, Lord, that it is fulfilling and reminding us of the fulfilled word of your Old Testament, that Luke and the New Testament is not standalone, but a, uh, a helpful explanation and unfolding of the Old Testament. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this book on the, or the first chapter or so of this book, would it open our eyes to just how uh, grand our faith is and how many generations it goes back. That our genealogy would not be of blood or our last name, but of our faith. And that we would have a firm ground of historical, historical faithfulness that we see so clearly articulated in so many of these passages. Lord, I pray that you help us with humble hearts and open uh, minds to understand with all the saints just how magnificent and beautiful your gospel is to us in Christ Jesus, our Saviour. I pray that it would draw our hearts to have the same longing that maybe Zachariah and Elizabeth had, the same expectation that the uh, shepherds would have had, and the same desire to honour and worship as the wise men had. May your, heart, uh, may your spirit empower us for all this, Lord, and mostly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout the Old Testament, there is a mystery surrounding the Messiah. There's a mystery around God's saving plan. And these things were deliberately hidden. They were veiled, like Moses' face was veiled when he came down from the mountain after speaking to God. They were deliberately concealed from the people so that they would be left unknowing, as Isaiah tells us. Well, Luke's Gospel, he starts uh, the way he starts in order to uh, reveal to us that he is going to unfold an orderly account so that we may be certain of the things that we believe. And we don't only see this just at the start of Luke, but if we uh, follow Luke quickly through, we'll see a few very significant passages. About halfway through, he gives this message to his disciples, warning them of the Pharisees in Luke 12, 1-3. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever, you, whatever is said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever has been whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. 
Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, warning them about the religious leaders of the time and their ability to make everything hard for people to come to the things of God. Well, Jesus is saying, this is not going to be so anymore, but as I send you out, as you become the religious leaders or the Christian leaders of the church, the veil is going to be removed at the resurrection, and I am going to uh, tell you everything that has been whispered to you in this secret group that we've had is going to now be proclaimed from the rooftops. Everything that was once dark is now going to be in the light. And Jesus does this after his resurrection when he's walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 to 27, uh, uh, sorry, Luke 24, verse 27, he says, it says that he started beginning with Moses and all the prophets and he interpreted to them all that the scriptures said about him. That the scriptures we're referring to is the Old Testament, not the New Testament, it wasn't written yet. So he's there with these followers, the disciples that were walking on the way to Emmaus and the resurrected Jesus who has now uh, been seen in absolute glory and, and accomplished all that God had for him in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament. He now articulates that to the people and he's wanting them to go forth and shout it from the rooftops. Not only do we see uh, this personal conversation that Jesus has with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but also he gathers all the disciples together and he says this in chapter 24, verse 44 to 49. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and he said to them, this is, this, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus gathers the disciples together and what he said halfway through his gospel has now come to the place where they are to speak from the rooftops and make what was dark light and, and reveal what was hidden uh, to be obvious to all people. In other words, what the Old Testament whispered about Christ, we scream. We scream forth. And what does uh, Luke tell us the Old Testament is about? Uh, in verse 45 of chapter 24, that, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The Old Testament is all about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are unfolding it, we are revealing it, the veil has been removed for us so that what was whispered is now shouted and what was hidden is now revealed. We have a historical faith. We have the greatest grounds to stand upon from any genealogy or any lineage or any last name or any biology that you are connected to, we have a greater one. We stand upon the faith that has stood for all eternity. We stand upon many great witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews tells us. So that's what Luke is going to accomplish. We are not going to read the whole Gospel of Luke or work through the whole Gospel of Luke, but just in this first chapter or this first little section and up till Christmas, we will see so clearly that Luke is deliberately making clear the Old Testament. He is forcefully uh, giving us teaching 
from what happened in the old for what has happened and how that makes sense in the new. And he starts with a very uh, intellectual, a very serious opening uh, few verses, wonderful, which I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. He tells us, just to summarize, that this is uh, an orderly account. That, of course, there are other documents. By this time, Mark was already written. Uh, Probably Matthew was written as well. Uh, We see that Luke is wanting to write the same thing, but he wants to do it orderly. He wants to know the order of what things played out. And he's doing it to an excellent leader whose name means friend of God. Uh, Maybe this is his new Christian name. Maybe he has been born again and he's been given a new name. Uh, Whatever it is, it means friend of God. And he is a man of great excellence. The same title is used for the leader that Paul talks to at the end of Acts. An excellent uh, high up leader. And he wants this man to be certain concerning the things that has been taught before. He wants him to be certain of his faith. So Luke is writing an account so that this friend of God would be certain of his friendship with God. He wants him to know the fullness of God and he doesn't want him to know the fullness of God in just the New Testament or these new manuscripts which they had because it wasn't all together yet. He wants them to be certain of it from the Old Testament. He wants this ordinary new believer to know the truth of God from Genesis to Malachi. He wants him to be able to read the Psalms and understand the death and the resurrection of Christ. Isaiah and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Wherever he turns, he wants this guy to see Jesus. And he wants you to see Jesus. Whether you are a Christian who is going to be a deacon one day or an elder one day or a servant of the gospel in the mission field or whether you are a worker, a mother, a father, You all are to be hungry for the unfolding of the Old Testament. You should all long to study the ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament and see Christ's death and resurrection and victory in it. So where do we end up? We don't start with Mary, but we start with a faithful yet barren marriage. A faithful yet barren marriage. But before we even are introduced to those, Luke tells us what's happening in the land, the promised land that Israel is to possess or was to possess. Verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Our first line should send trembles or shivers up our body as we think of the weight of a king that is not from the line of Judah. Herod was a puppet king of some sort. He, was, he did have power. Of course, he had power in the area of Judea, but ultimately he submitted to Caesar, the emperor in Rome. Uh, but he was the king. And he, at this time, was not a follower of the Jewish faith, did not acknowledge any the God of the Old Testament, And we should realize that just because we've just done Genesis, just the weight of this phrase. Uh, Genesis 49.10 tells us the promise to Judah, or the blessing upon Judah from Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
This was the blessing upon Judah. And where there's blessings, there's also curses. And because there was a blessing that said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, we know that there has been a breaking of a covenant because this is not so. Israel has broken the covenant of God. Israel no longer has a king in Judah. David is not the king. And David's line is not the king. So we see that on one side that the Israelites have broken the covenant of God and therefore the fact that Herod is the king of Judea reminds us that they are disobedient. Yet in the midst of disobedience, there is a faithful couple. You see, what's going on at this time is everyone's divided. Well, while, although they are in Jerusalem, while, although they have a, 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 some sense of freedom, it's a false freedom. We see different groups rise up among the Jews. The zealots believe they should, shouldn't submit to Rome at all and want to fight for their free, freedom. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, they have got power for themselves. They've got wealth and prestige, prestige, and they want to keep this. They want to keep this freedom. They want to keep this power. They want to keep their relationship with Rome peaceable so that they don't lose their luxuries. And in order to do that, they'll crucify the Christ. They'll behead John or whatever it may be. We see so clearly that these Pharisees and Sadducees don't really care about the law the way they say they care about the law, but they care about their power and their luxuries and their comfort. And then you have, among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Zechariah and Elizabeth, a barren yet faithful couple, who are in the midst of a people who Jesus will later say are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What's wrong with Israel at the moment? They don't have a king. They're waiting, hoping, longing, yet many of them have probably stopped doing that altogether. It's been 400 years since the words of God were spoken. It's been silence for so long. No prophet. Yet, there are a bunch of priests still going about the duties that they were set to that's been passed down from generation to generation. And Isaac, uh, Isaac, sorry, Zechariah, has been told to us that he was of the division of Abijah, which means he's of the priestly line, and also his wife was of, of the daughters of Aaron, reminding us that she is of the uh, Levitical priesthood line. This was appropriate, and a, a true priest would only marry within the Levitical line. So we already see that by his choosing of his wife in marriage was that he wanted to remain faithful to God's law. He wanted to remain faithful to God's word, which then in verse 6 tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in the commandments and statutes of the law. What does this mean? This means that they, were, they desired to be faithful to God. They would strive to uphold the law of God as best they could. They knew that they were failing in their sinfulness, so they would practice the repetitive uh, process of the sacrificial system in order to atone for their sin. But according to God's sight and the law, uh, the visible law, they were faithful to it. Verse 7 tells us, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now this 
would have put him and Elizabeth in a place of looking like they weren't faithful to God. The but reminds us that not having a child was a curse upon people. Being childless was genuinely a hard thing to deal with because most people would say that you were under the curse of God. But we know that the Bible has just told us that they were righteous. And we also know that the Bible tells us later on when Jesus is walking with his disciples and they see a blind man and, Jesus, and they, they ask, who sinned, this man or his, uh, or, his, or his parents, in order that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It was because that, so that God's glory would be seen through the healing of this man. Well, the same is true for Isaac and Elizabeth. God's glory is going to be seen because he is going to give them a very specific child who is going to do very specific things. John the Baptist, the preparer for Christ. So we see this couple who are obedient, yet have the heavy toll upon them of the personal suffering of not having a child and the questions that surround that. Why God is my, why, why are we in this place? Probably many unanswered prayers over, or what feel like unanswered prayers over many, many decades, yet still faithfully serving to their old age. This is a couple who have seen the national chaos, the personal chaos, and instead of going off and giving up or serving themselves and building their own kingdom, Zachariah is there ready to give sacrifices ready to give the incense, ready to follow the traditions, the commands that God had for them. You wonder how many times this couple sat around together and shared stories of the days of old, when David, the good king, the king after God's own heart, reigned. How many times they would have shared the story of Rebecca or Rachel, the barren women, or maybe Naomi, who lost her husband and her sons and became a childless widow. Maybe they shared often of Hannah, who eventually, finally has a son who becomes the father of, uh, sorry, who becomes Samuel, who is Samuel. But none probably more precious to them than Abraham and Sarah, who in their 90s finally had a seed, an offspring. An offspring who will point us very clearly towards Christ as he's offered on an altar. You see, what Luke is doing here is drawing us well back to Genesis. Luke is taking us back to a faithful couple long ago who left their homeland and wandered into a promised land that yet they would never possess in their life. They would have to wait. They would wait for a very long time. They would sin and cause God's will or think they were causing God's will to come about in their own way by having a son from a maid woman. But what we see here is Luke going, here we have once again a barren couple in their old, old age who have faithfully walked with me and we are waiting again for a seed. This is what Luke opens with, a nation that's homeless, kingless, unbound yet in some respects in prison, a crowd that has no shepherd, and a couple that serves faith, faithfully, and they wait for the seed 
that was echoed so long ago. It's echoing now in the book of Luke as we start this reading, and it reminds us that God is working through generations, and it's through generational faithfulness. Just think of Zechariah, who didn't ever have a time where prophets were around with him. He never even had his father to say, yeah, I remember when the prophet, no one was around. Or his grandfather, who doesn't remember a prophet either, or his great-grandfather before that. And you can keep going back, maybe four or five greats. So he doesn't have a tangible story that was passed on for him. He is like Moses' generation who have been in slavery for many hundreds of years. Yet still serves faithfully. Because he knows that his faith is built on historical faithfulness, as Luke is wanting to point out to us. Our faith is built on historical faithfulness. That God may just have a revival waiting for our great-grandchildren, not for us. That God may have a revival waiting for the children that sit in our midst, and we are just meant to be faithful in getting them to their place of serving. So we see here, Isaac, uh, Zachariah, man, all over the place. Zachariah and Elizabeth are faithful, waiting for the seed that was echoed throughout the whole of Scripture. And in verse 8 to 17, we see this play out. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the house of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink drink wine or strong drink, and and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Finally, God speaks. And God speaks exactly where he left off. In Malachi 4, 5 to 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I will come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. We see the last words of Malachi pointing us to this time when there will be a a figure like Elijah, a prophet like Elijah, who will speak judgment upon the people. He will judge the people and he will point people to a saviour like a priest points to the goat of sacrifice, the goat they sacrifice. This is what John will do. This is the promise to Zechariah here in his old age. 
He will have a seed, yet his seed will not be the seed that we've been long waiting for. His seed will not fulfill what Isaac could not fulfill, uh, what he could not fulfill. But Zachariah's son will prepare the people for the message of salvation. And if they do not repent, destruction is their only option. Destroy, uh, utter destruction. And we see this, uh, this unfolding of the Old Testament as John is sort of placed with all these Old Testament characteristics. He will be great before the Lord. There were so many men throughout the Old Testament that we noticed that were called great before him. Enoch, uh, Noah and Abraham walked before God. They were great men before God. Uh, David is seen as a great man before God. We see these men who are great before God are those who have been obedient to God's word and God's call and called them to faithfulness. And this is what John will fulfill. He will be the one who comes right before the Saviour. All those other prophets, all the other, like Noah and Abraham, were many thousands of years, but John is going to be the one that stands in the midst of the Saviour. He will never touch uh, dr- strong drink, the wine or strong drink, drink, which was a tradition. We see uh, uh, the, the Nazarite vow in Numbers 6.3 and Judges 13.4, where Samson is uh, told that he will never touch wine or strong drink. And the reason for this was that in no way could there ever be a charge against this man that he judged incorrectly. So the person who drinks wine or strong drink uh, at times may be unable to judge correctly and pervert justice. Uh, So as a tradition, uh, this judge-like figure who is to come will just never touch it and then there can be never never a charge against him that he has perverted justice. It was purely a tradition and does not uh, condemn the drinking of uh, alcohol in a, of course, a moderate um, setting. So we see he fulfills the judge of the Old Testament. He is like the judge. He is like the one who walks with God. He's going to have the Holy Spirit even in the womb. This is significant. Uh, He is going to have the promise of the New Testament, the New Covenant, in upon him even before he is born. In other words, he's going to be born again before he's born. That's pretty amazing. He is of the blood of Adam and he needs to be born again because he is a sinful man to his absolute core and God is saying, I'm going to do that in the womb. I'm going to give him the Holy Spirit in the womb, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that later play out, that even in the womb, he recognizes Christ in the womb of Mary, and they have this little party. So John the Baptist is this man who is going to be of the new covenant. This man who is putting his faith in Christ before Christ has even come. This man who is going to be moved along by the Holy Spirit like the apostles are moved along by the Holy Spirit. And then also he's going to be of the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, as Malachi says and as Luke says here, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we're thinking of Elijah. He's sort of the symbol of prophets of the Old Testament. If Moses is the symbol of the law, Elijah is the symbol of the prophets. And Elijah was a prophet who spoke in a time of chaos and false kings, selfish kings like Herod. 
uh, and they led the people of God astray. So much so that Elijah at one point thought that everyone had abandoned God and not, there wasn't a single other person that was obedient. And God says to him, I have kept 6,000 for me. Elijah, Elijah spoke very clearly against the sins of the age and he judged the people clearly. And this is the same message that John will preach. John preached the message of judgment. John preached fire and brimstone, which we'll see in a moment. Yet his message will not preserve 6,000, but the whole world. Not everyone will be saved, but from every nation, tribe and tongue will there be people that are saved. And Proverbs eleven fourteen tells us that where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counsellors, there is safety. The people of Israel have long gone without a good king. There were very few good kings if you read the book of Kings. There were times, if we look at the book of Judges, where they were faithful for a time under one specific judge and then after that judge passes away, they turn from God and go after what's right in their own eyes. This was the pattern of Israel. They are looking for a judge that will last forever, a priest that will be a sufficient priest who can offer a sacrifice greater than the sacrifice of lambs and goats and a king who endures the who does not fall himself and stands firm. John is not that, but John will prepare the way for that. John's message was this. In Matthew 3, 7 to 12, we see John speaking. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume, presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you of the Holy Spirit and fire. His fork is in his hand and he will clear his, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was a judge. John spoke like a prophet. And prophets speak truth. And they speak boldly without apology. We see even from this message that John came full of the Holy Spirit. Only a man full of the Holy Spirit could speak so boldly. And he's calling the leaders, the leaders of the Israelite people, brood of vipers, calling them, uh, warning them that, they, that, they, that they, if they don't flee from the wrath to come, they will be cut off in unquenchable fire. We see here that they uh, think that just because they are of the line of Abraham, they are secure. And what does he say? I can, God can make ro uh, these rocks children of Abraham. You don't need to be biologically connected to Abraham to be his son. In fact, it's about faith. Having faith like Abraham. Faith that was counted as righteousness. If we reflect on what Luke is doing, again, Luke is pointing us back 
to the Old Testament of either being a son of Abraham, which was a son of faith and righteousness, or sons of Sodom. Because as Abraham is counted righteous, Sodom is destroyed in what? Unquenchable fire. The message that John will preach is a message that says you are either a child of Abraham or you're either a child of hell. And a child of hell is plunged into unquenchable fire. We must take seriously the stories of the Old Testament. The stories of the Old Testament were real people pointing to a real king, a real prophet, a real priest. They were all pointing to Christ's death and resurrection. And only through Christ can we understand them. As the apostles had the veil lifted from their eyes, they could see and understand the Scriptures pointing to God. We're called to lean on the promises of God. We are a covenant people. The covenant people of God today. Therefore, our lives should be spoken of as covenant people. Your genealogy of your blood or last name has little effect on your eternal destination. Actually, it has very, very little effect. But what your faith connects you to is something that's last for millennia. We go back, right back, to Adam into the garden. And that's where our genealogy began. That's how far our historical faith goes back. We have much reason to stand with confidence and declare righteousness in our time as John declared righteousness in his. But at times we can be feeling more like Zechariah. Zechariah in verse 18 then challenges the angel. How shall I know? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. A man who has faithfully served his whole life, longingly waited for the Word of God. When the Word of God comes his way, he challenges it. He questions it. And the curse is that he'll be mute. He won't even get to celebrate with his wife with a joy of singing or a way of uh, declaring praise. He will have to wait nine months or so in order to sing, which he does sing, but he doesn't get to immediately. As we look at the historical faith that we have, this ordered account that God has given to us so graciously that we can stand with confidence and have certainty that God is unchanging, that all His promises will be fulfilled. As we hear the Word of God this Christmas, as we wonder about our time or our personal lives, as we think about the sorrows uh, that may encompass us, would we be aware that God is still working in it all? Would we not allow ourselves to become apathetic towards the mundane? Or block out the Word of God when it actually comes? Or question it? But would we wait with expectant longing through small steps of obedience like Zachariah and Elizabeth lived? Even in the midst of a nation kingless and a barren womb. Knowing that God can change things very, very quickly and transform the world with one child. Let's pray.
Holy Father, I thank you that our faith is your work. That as 1 Peter has remind us, reminded us over the, the last few months that you are the one that guards our faith and you are the one that caused our faith. Lord, before that we were dead. So Lord, we thank you for the new life we have been given, the Holy Spirit that is filling us. And Lord, I ask that you would increase our faith. Increase our faith as we search and survey the Old Testament. And Lord, would we see all those who have stood in uncertainty, in personal struggle, would these great cloud of witnesses encourage us to endure with patience? And when your word comes, correcting us or miraculously bringing salvation in different ways that we don't expect, would we trust it? Lord, this Christmas I pray that we would, with eager longing and great expectation, say with the church and the spirit, come Lord Jesus, come. Build your kingdom here. Establish your rule and reign forever. We pray this in your name. Amen.